Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, and I'm Janice Richardson. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is on Facebook now. You can find it by searching Radical Philosophy Radio Show on Facebook and clicking to follow and keep updated with the show. Happy listening. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Susie Kilmister about autonomy. And this is part two of a two-part interview. Could you explain about the four different distinct ways that paternalism may threaten autonomy? Sure. So for listeners who might not have a kind of firm grip on what, what paternalism is or, or what it's meant to be, when philosophers talk about paternalism, they usually mean an action that kind of overrides someone else's autonomy and that's done in order to kind of protect that person or to promote their well-being. So some examples of things that would kind of count as paternalistic. You might start to sense that, that maybe I haven't had breakfast yet. But anyway, um, so imagine that uh, your friend's about to go for their second slice of chocolate cake and you decide that, you know, really they shouldn't, it's not very good for them. So you kind of whisk it away from them. That would be a kind of paternalistic thing. They've made a decision. They want to eat the chocolate cake. You take it away in some sense for their own good. That's considered paternalistic. Or another kind of example, it would be paternalistic to kind of hide your partner's mobile phone from them because you think... They're playing too much Candy Crush, right? And like it'd be better for them if they got back to work. Again, right, your partner's made a choice. Right? They're living their life the way they want and you come in and you'll say, no, no, I'm going to... You kind of sneakily try and remove that option from them. So those are kind of maybe slightly trivial personal examples. But a lot of uh, philosophers worry that the state itself can also be paternalistic uh, and worry about whether or not that's a problem. So, for instance, there'll be people who say that things like seatbelt laws are paternalistic, right? People should just be free to make this decision for themselves. And there's something problematic about the state kind of overriding people's judgments, people's decisions to take risks or not take risks. Same with things like bike helmet laws. People sometimes complain that we shouldn't have bike helmet laws because this is the state, in a sense, trying to replace our own judgment about what's good for us. In the US, there's, there's, I don't know if we have it so much here, but talk about having like taxes on soft drinks and stuff or limits on the size soft drinks you can buy in order to kind of tackle obesity. These are the kinds of things that people get upset about and they get upset because they think of it as kind of paternalistic, right? The idea is that we're meant to be able to decide for ourselves, even if that's a decision to do something that's in some sense not, you know, the best for us. You know, we can, we should be able to make decisions to lead a kind of less than optimally healthy life if that's what we want to do and someone shouldn't shouldn't try to stop it. So people have typically thought that paternalism is a problem and that we shouldn't be paternalistic because of how it conflicts 
with autonomy. So the idea is that autonomy and paternalism are kind of in in con- in contrast with one another. Paternalism is wrong precisely because it kind of overrides autonomy. Um, so I've I've kind of argued in in a recent paper that I've written that people who work on paternalism, so they're coming at this question from the kind of angle of what is paternalism and why is it problematic, tend to have a kind of simplified idea of what autonomy is. And that if we kind of scratch the surface a little bit and are, and look at kind of what people who work on autonomy think autonomy is, it's not actually that simple. And so there are different ways I think we can understand this conflict. Doesn't mean that there isn't a conflict, but I think it kind of gets a little bit more gets a little bit more complicated. So one way to kind of understand what's going on when when the state prevents us from say cycling without a helmet is to understand it as something like kind of frustrating our autonomy. So this makes, I think, most sense if we, if we go back to the Frankfurt-style view, right? So the idea here would be, look, if I desire to kind of feel the wind in my hair when I'm cycling, right, and I know that conflicts with some kind of desire to, like, lead a long and healthy life, but really when I step back and, and reflect on it, no, 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 I really do endorse that desire to be a little bit reckless, then, then my helmetless bicycle riding would be an autonomous action for me, right? And, and the thought here is that when the state stops me doing that, it's preventing me from kind of exercising my autonomy. It's preventing me from doing something that would have been an autonomous thing for me to do. So it kind of gets in the way. It blocks me from doing this autonomous thing. A different way to think about it, though, and I think this is um, in the background a little bit, particularly for people who are worried about the kind of state making these health-related decisions or kind of setting up these kind of constraints on how we eat and what we eat and when we exercise and all this kind of stuff is the worry that this kind of overarching state paternalism kind of stunts our, the development of our autonomy. And here we're thinking about autonomy not as something that we kind of do in a moment but as a kind of general capacity that we have. So on this kind of way of thinking about it, autonomy is something that doesn't just kind of come naturally or automatically. We have to learn how to do it, how to be autonomous. It takes practice. Um, and if we have to kind of build up certain kinds of cognitive skills. We have to get good at reflecting on our own, on ourselves and our own desires. And we also have to, you know, get a bit of willpower. We have to learn to kind of go with the desire we endorse, not the one that's necessarily strongest in the moment. So this, this takes some kind of work and practice. And the worry here is that the more that the state kind of comes in and makes these difficult decisions for us, the more that it kind of prevents us from even encountering situations where we might be tempted to go against our better judgment, like preventing us from eating that second slice of chocolate cake, right? We're never going to learn to do this for ourselves. We're never going to kind of get the, develop the willpower to, you know, exercise our own will, exercise our own autonomy. So we've got the preventing us from acting in certain kind of ways. That's meant to be bad in and of itself. It's kind of bigger worry that the state might just stunt our kind of capacities. The third one, uh, I'll go through a bit more quickly, that, that's just the idea that there's something disrespectful about paternalism. And I think that's also, we hear that in people's complaints about states' actions and other people's actions, right? Like when I, if I hide my partner's phone, right, okay, I've prevented him doing something he wants, but that's kind of not necessarily capturing the wrongness of what I've done. It's really patronising, right? It's really disrespectful. It's suggesting I think my judgment's better than his, right? Replacing my judgment with his. So that kind of patronising feel of paternalism is something we can capture with the idea that 
it's disrespectful to assume someone can't act autonomously for themselves or disrespectful to think they won't do that in a kind of good way. So there's the disrespect thing. And then finally, there's the idea, um, the kind of basic idea that we kind of have a right to make our own decisions, that this is something that it's our kind of authority to decide for ourselves how we want to live our lives. So there's a kind of overriding this entitlement to decide for ourselves is meant to be part of the problem with paternalism. So there it's not so much about whether or not the action would have been autonomous at all. That doesn't really come into it. It's about that I should have been in the position to decide kind of how I acted going forward and preventing me from from making my own decisions, acting on my own judgments is kind of intrinsically meant to be wrong. One of the problems with some of this, though, is that like I said, the theories of paternalism tend to take a slightly simplistic view of what autonomy is. And why this gets a little bit complicated is that on any actual theory of autonomy, there's going to be plenty of stuff we do, plenty of stuff we kind of decide to do that's not actually autonomous after all, right? So it's easy with Stolja. We can see that, right? We saw the example that, like, my shaving my legs in the morning wasn't an autonomous action. But if that's right, then it wouldn't be paternalistic to stop me, right? Because if it's not autonomous and there's nothing to kind of conflict with, right, it would be fine. But that still seems kind of wrong, right? It still seems wrong to say that, sure, you know, we, we recognise that you're acting on the basis of this oppressive ideology you've internalised. So now it's fine for us to stop you acting. That seems kind of a bit dodgy. And even for someone like Frankfurt, right, he's going to be fine with the leg shaving, but there's other things he's going to count as, as non-autonomous. Like maybe my chocolate cake eating if if I'm kind of breaking a diet or something. But even then you might think like, still there's something kind of off about your friend or your partner, right? Saying, I know you really don't want to eat it, so I'm going to take it away from you. So I think there's kind of more work to be done there philosophically about what the relationship between paternalism and autonomy is actually meant to be. Maybe there's something else about paternalism or some other notion of autonomy that we need to kind of make sense of like, what's really gets to us about those kind of interventions. I think one one issue is I remember when I was quite a young child, you know, three or four uh, seatbelts weren't compulsory mm. and I remember my mother had a station wagon and she had a little mattress in the back and whenever I felt like it, I got a bit tired, I'd just <laughs> climb over the back seat, lay down on the mattress and have a little nap. But mm. when I look back on that, it really sends shivers down my spine to think what could have happened to me. Mm. And I think a lot of these regulations like, you know, children having to stay in car seats until they're well, seven, eight or whatever <laughs> now. And also uh, for, for children and adults wearing bike helmets, mm. it's, it's, actually, it's actually sort of a fine line. But I think the, the government really does, or the state has a duty to protect people from mm. themselves, particularly children. Yeah, particularly children. And this is... When people talk about paternalism, they're usually only worried about adults. And part of the explanation for that is, well, the children aren't autonomous at all anyway, so or not properly autonomous or fully autonomous or something. So it's okay to do it to them. And look, the the idea is meant to be that patern- there's something problematic about paternalism, but that doesn't mean that it, it's never justified. It's just that there's kind of this little niggling problem with it that, that we should be a little bit uncomfortable with, even if we want to justify it overall in the end. And, and one of the strategies people sometimes use if they say, look, bike helmet laws and seatbelt laws and stuff like that, we should have them, you know, even though that means overriding people's judgments. Sometimes they'll try to explain it in other ways, like public health. 
and say, look, we're all picking up the, the bill for when, you know, you get hit by the truck and now you need um, emergency care, right? So given that we have to pay the cost, it's only fair that we kind of impose some limits on you. The ones where I think it really becomes more vivid is if someone really is doing something where the only person that they're going to damage is themselves. So I might think of certain kinds of extreme sports. Um, if we forget, you know, we have to kind of set it up so that we don't have to worry about the emergency services who have to helicopter in and rescue you when you've like broken your leg on the base jumping or something. But but if but if we think about those kind of where you're only yourself is kind of at risk, um, that might make it a little a little bit more vivid. John Christman has objected to subjective concepts of autonomy on the grounds that they induce unwanted perfectionism into political thinking. What's your view on this? So the kinds of substantive conceptions of autonomy that he's worried about are precisely ones like Stolja's, right, that say that there are certain kinds of desires that can't be autonomous. And there's other kinds of views that say certain kinds of uh, relationships will just kind of make you non-autonomous. So there's this kind of broad cluster of views that say, look, we can just rule out certain things as being autonomous just by knowing what those things are. And so he worries that this is going to kind of end up imposing a particular political conception on people who reject it, and that's meant to be kind of problematic. And I'm sympathetic to this idea, to be honest. I think once we end up going around saying that people who are acting on the basis of different belief systems aren't autonomous, then things can get, I think, pretty nasty and disrespectful pretty quickly. So I mentioned before that it's not actually uncommon for advocates of substantive theories to say that people who find themselves in or even put themselves in certain kinds of subservient relationships can't be autonomous. Right? So slavery is one thing, right? But they also want to say, look, if you are in a kind of traditional style marriage, at least under some um, traditional conceptions, where in a sense a woman's role is just to do what the, the husband says. By definition, you can't be autonomous, right? And the things that you do aren't autonomous actions. But that's ruling out an awful lot of people around the world, especially women who find themselves in or may even choose to be in these kinds of relationships. And I do think that, you know, whatever else we want to say about these relationships and whatever else we want to say about the kind of belief systems around them, I do think there's something problematic about just declaring all of these women non-autonomous, just by definition. And I think we can see part of this problem if we turn to some of the other kinds of applications or kind of issues where autonomy raises its head. So I've already looked at paternalism, where people kind of understand what paternalism is kind of by, by its conflict with autonomy. But there's other kind of areas too that I think are really kind of raise the issue um, or the problem with these substantive conceptions. So for instance, it's common in philosophical discussions of what consent is or when consent actually kind of counts, is valid, to assume that consent can only be offered by someone who's acting autonomously. We see this in medicine all the time, right? It's got to be informed consent. If you don't know what it is that you're consenting to, the consent doesn't kind of count Consent can't be coerced, right? So in some, the, the idea here really is that when you offer consent, you have to be the one who gives it, you have to be in control of it. So it's depending on this idea of autonomy. You can't give consent if you're not autonomous. That's why children can't give consent. But if we then say that like any woman in a subservient relationship is like by definition not autonomous, it looks like they just can't consent right, to anything ever. They can't consent to medical treatment. They can't consent to sex. Right? Everything that happens in their life, is we have to understand it as kind of done to them kind of without, without them being in control of it. And I think that's, there's something kind of 
problematic. It misses something about these women's lives, right? That the, like I said, whatever else we want to say about these relationships, it looks like these women are exercising these kind of capacities. They're making decisions, they're making judgments, and, and we should find a way to kind of respect that. So another, and, and just another kind of example as well, or people who work on moral responsibility will often say that you're not morally responsible for something if you weren't autonomous when you did it, right? So if, if you're kind of, someone drugs you and then you go off and break something, right? The idea is, well, look, you weren't in control of your actions. So like, we won't hold you responsible for that. Or if you were sleepwalking or something like that, right? There's certain things that get you off the hook for moral responsibility. And, and roughly speaking, the idea is, well, you know, if you weren't in control of your actions, if you weren't autonomous when you did them, you're not, you're not morally responsible. But then again, take this back to the substantive conception. If we want to say that like, these vast numbers of people around the world, just in virtue of their religion or their culture, just aren't autonomous at all. They're, like, they're not morally responsible for anything. Um, and that just seems really patronising, right, to say that, like, no matter what you do, don't worry, right, you're off the hook. You're, you're like an infant or, a, you know, a rabid dog. Or, and it's something really insulting about that. So I think we, you know, we want to be really, really, really careful with this. And I think if we're thinking of autonomy in the ways that, people who work on consent or paternalism or moral responsibility are thinking about autonomy. We want to be really careful in, in not kind of judging vast swathes of humanity be, to be non-autonomous. But that doesn't mean I think we should just reject substantive theories. I think they have their place. So I think one of the things that's going on here is that people are developing theories of autonomy for different purposes or like with a different kind of goal in mind. So some people are really interested in like, what makes my action of picking up this cup autonomous, right? Or how is that different from, like, if I'm just acting automatically or if I've been drugged or something? That, that's a kind of interesting question, and, and that's the kind of thing Frankfurt's trying to answer. But there's another kind of way of maybe thinking about autonomy where we think about it as a kind of uh, particularly valuable way of life, right, or a goal that we might try to live up to, or maybe the kind of life that we think everyone should be able to achieve if they wanted it. So we want to set up our society so that no one's kind of prevented from leading a certain kind of life. And maybe it's got nothing to do with like It's not the same thing as what we use when we talk about consent or moral responsibility. And if, we, if we're careful and say like this is what we're talking about, that there's something, there's some way in which people who are in subservient relationships aren't as free as people who aren't aren't as in control of their life as people who aren't and there's something we might want to either either help or if that's too if that's too patronizing or paternalistic we might at least want to set systems up so people have options to get out of that if we think that that's not necessarily the ideal way of life so if we think of yeah if we think of just this different way of autonomy and i think that's what a lot of the feminist theories are trying to get at they're trying to say look one of the harms of the patriarchy one of the many many harms of the patriarchy is that it kind of impedes the ability to which we, we govern ourselves. And I think if, we, if we're careful and just kind of limit it in that way, then I think the substantive theories can really add something to our kind of political philosophy as well, um, particularly our kind of feminist theory. Do you think that it would be possible for somebody sort of living in an average society to be 100% autonomous? Um, I don't think any of us are ever 100% autonomous. <laughs> Mostly because I think it's, and I don't think it would be good to be, right? I mean, there's something to be, at least on the way I understand autonomy, right? Like, there's a lot of, like, governance going on. Some, But sometimes it's good to throw the rules away, right? Sometimes it's good to act on a whim, um, act against our best judgment, do the impulsive thing. 
let ourselves be blown around for a while. <laughs> I can think, that, and there can be something kind of liberating, at least temporarily. We're saying, you know what? I'm not going to make the decisions for a while. I'm just going to do whatever you 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 reckon we should do. Right? There's something fun about that, provided we can take the reins back again once we, once we're kind of sick of it. So I think that. I'm not sure we should want it. <laughs> Maybe there are people, and I'm trying to think if I know people like this, I don't know that they're very happy, but people who do, like, really every decision, we want to think about it and reflect on it, and, like, we really want to, like, never outsource anything to anyone else. That that kind of life, I think, you could lead it. Maybe it's possible, but, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they'd be having a good time, and I'm not sure they'd be all that much fun to be around either, to be honest. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's quite funny. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already mentioned? No, I think I think that more or less covers covers my take on this stuff anyway. Like I said, I think it's one of these really contentious philosophical areas and I've only given obviously a very kind of brief gloss on it. So I'm sure there'd be plenty of people who work on autonomy who would who would kind of take issue with some of the ways I've presented things or, or things that I've left out. But but yeah, that's probably probably it for me, I think, on that. So do you have any future study plans within this field? Not on autonomy. I, I um I tend to move in kind of cycles of about three or five years of working on an issue and kind of squeezing as much out of it as I can and then being sick to death of it and moving on. So at the moment, I've kind of moved on from autonomy and I'm, I'm thinking about dignity is my current big project of, of what dignity is and what it means to violate people's dignity and uh, how we should protect people's dignity. So that's my like, kind of latest, my latest thing. Do you think there's any connection between dignity and autonomy? I do think there's a bit of a connection it's a loose one but there is a bit of connection so I think that at least one way to understand dignity violations is that we're we're forcing someone to do something that they'd be ashamed of right that's one it's kind of inducing shame in people if you think about you know what was happening at Abu Ghraib that kind of torture or even just kind of like schoolyard bullies and the way in which they you know they pants each other and stuff like I think these are kind of two ends of a spectrum but they're both kind of instances of dignity violation and I think what they're doing is kind of honing in on the standards people set for themselves the kind of life this is where you get back to autonomy honing in on the kind of life someone wants to lead and the kind of person that they want to be right what it is that they have to be to, or do to be able to look themselves in the eye. And this is why dignity violations, I think, are so pernicious. They, like, they hone in on that thing that's going to make you ashamed of yourself and like force you to do that. So there's, like, there's a bit of a connection to autonomy. There's, like, we have to kind of, to make sense of dignity, think about people being self-governing at least to the extent that we're like setting our own standards, have ideals for, for what kind of life we want to lead and, and what kind of things that we take to be shameful. And then dignity violations are these horrible little or big attempts to kind of really undermine undermine our, our self-respect. Um, yeah, when you, when you mentioned about the non-human animals and autonomy, the first thing that came to mind was my, my dog usually comes into the studio with me, but because today it was such a cold morning, she didn't even come out from under the blankets. <laughs> and I thought, well... I, th- I think I should let her just stay there rather yeah. than, even though she'll be disappointed when mm. I when I get home that she hasn't come out with me. But I thought, in a way, it's her choice. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think you know I've just kind of followed people like Frankfurt and philosophers do this all the time. It's kind of frustrating. Who just assume that there's all these things animals can't do and these capacities that they lack, and they don't need to assume that. They're only doing it to try to explain what humans are like. And I do think, yeah, philosophers should pay more attention to actually 
sure, maybe maybe dogs are autonomous. Maybe dogs have dignity too, right? Like I don't. I think that there's a lot of um, interesting work that could be done there. They're probably more better and more interesting than we than a lot of philosophers give animals, non-human animals, credit for. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We'll get back to the debate between dogs and cats. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, I might have to step out of that one. <laughs> and well, when you think about it, you know, most dogs are sort of just wanting to please their human, mm-hmm. but cats sort of do their own thing. So yeah. therefore, the, uh, a cat's more autonomous than dogs. They may well be. And they both cats and dogs also seem to be susceptible to shame too. I mean, this is another thing. A lot of people just assume dogs and cats can't feel shame. But I don't know. I've, I've met some cats that seem pretty ashamed and dogs as well that like, really, when they get caught out, that's 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 not just fear of punishment. That's That's a deep sense of kind of personal failing I feel I feel like maybe it's just projection but <laughs> but it looks like they're feeling like that so yeah oh thanks very much for coming onto the program today not a problem it was a pleasure thanks for having me and I've been speaking with Dr Susie Kilmister about autonomy and this is part two of a two-part interview Hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.